Hello. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. We hope that you will be encouraged and it builds your faith. Thanks for listening. How many of y'all remember the old school Mission Impossible? Huh? And, uh, of course, Peter Graves would play uh, Jim Phelps in that, in that show. And he would receive a, a, a uh, I don't even know what the uh, reel, a tape reel. And uh, he would play it, and he would have an assignment. He'd be given a mission. And after he would hear the mission, uh, he had a choice, either to accept the mission. Uh, and if he did, that uh, he had to understand that if he died, that... Um, they would act like they did not know him. And, uh, of course, every tape that was played was self-destructed in five seconds. And so, uh, but it was a great show. And, uh, but I, I want to talk about a different mission tonight. And your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to live a life that's on mission. And that mission should be this, so that we could reach all, that we could teach the disciple, that we could send the called. As always, should any of you of the, of, your RV, of the RVCC family get caught or apprehended by the Holy Ghost or die uh, to self, heaven will take note of all of your action and heavenly rewards will also await you. This call and mission on your life will never self-destruct. It will never fade away. And now I ask you that if you would be willing to not step into mission impossible, but to step into mission possible. How many know when you live for God, it's not mission impossible, it's mission possible for God? You say, well, I don't know if that's true. Well, that's not what Jesus told his disciples when his disciples and Jesus gave them the parable of how a man can enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Bible says that his disciples were astonished at what he had said. And when he had said these things, Jesus looked at them and said to them, uh, with, men, man, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen? How many know that God can make our mission possible? If God calls you to do it, God will make sure that he will provide a way for you to do it and to finish everything he calls us to do. Hallelujah. How many are thankful for the call of God and the mission that he gives us? And you know, last week on Thursday, we talked about the question and we talked about the, uh, uh, talked about the five spiritual measures of spiritual competence. And uh, I told you that each week we would be talking about each one of those and uh, what we're talking about is, is that our mission is to build committed people, and our mission is to build spiritually competent people. And when I say competence, I mean spiritually mature people. How many know the church needs some mature people in it? If are going to reach the world and change the world and touch the world, we have to be competent in spiritual things. That's our mission, is to build competent people. Because it's not just my job to share Jesus, but it's also your job. Okay, two of you. Praise God. I got an army. I got an, if I got two or three are gathered in your name, you're in the midst. I said it's just not my job, but it's your job also. That we have a world that's lost and we need to live on mission. 
We need to reach everybody God will allow us to reach. We need to disciple everybody that comes through these doors. Mr. and Mrs. River Valley, when they come through, we want them not only to be committed people, but we want them to uh, connect to this body so that we can disciple them so that they could be a competent Christian, that they're able to live their life in victory with confidence and maturity. And I, I shared these five things with you as kind of part of our mission. Last week, I preached and shared with you on am I sharing Jesus regularly in my life? And so uh, I'm going to be showing you these things because I want you to get them in your spirit. I want you to memorize these. I want you to be able to say, uh, we're living on mission. We're, God is building spiritual competence in my life. And these are the five questions you have to ask yourself. Am I spending time with God daily? Am I spending time with God? You cannot be a mature Christian without spending time with God. Am I living what, I, what I'm learning? Am I living what the Lord is showing me in Scripture? Am I living what I'm being taught? Am I living what I'm reading and what I'm praying? Am I sharing Jesus regularly? Am I sacrificing for the kingdom of God? Am I spiritually investing in others? In other words, God doesn't just bless us for us, but God blesses us so that we could be a blessing to others. Is that not right? And so God has called us to a spiritual maturity and a spiritual competence. And we talked about how we share Jesus regularly. And I kept it very simple to you. I said we're going to be salt and light. That we're going to be salt and light. And, and, and I said, how do you be salt and light? How do, you, how do you become salt and light to the community? How do you be a preservation to the people that you're around? How do you impact uh, the people, the atmosphere? It says when salt loses its savor, when it loses its flavor, when it loses that, it, it's good for nothing and it's thrown out and trampled on upon by men. In other words, to, for salt to have its savor means it has the ability to change the very atmosphere that it is in. Nothing's better than a steak, when you take that steak off the grill, than to put butter on that steak and to put salt on that steak. And then put it back on the grill. And this is how I do I don't know about how you all eat it, but this is how I eat it. I throw a bunch of butter on it, and I throw salt on it, and I throw it back on the grill because I know that salt is going to pull that flavor out of that steak. And so... I don't know why I'm talking about food. The fast is over. But I'm just telling you, that's how I do it. That salt pulls out that flavor. It pulls out that, that flavor that's in there. It has the ability to change. And as Christians, we should change our atmosphere. We should change the environments we walk into. When we walk into our job, it's like Jesus walking into our jobs. Huh? Y'all with me tonight? And so uh, it's, it's salt and light. And we do that. We do that by, I told you, it's very simple. Telling the story. Telling the story. We tell the story. We tell the story of God. We tell God's story. What is God's story? Every Jew had to tell three stories to his children around their table. They were commanded by law to share these three stories by the Mishnah. They were commanded by the Torah. They were commanded to share uh, these three stories. They were commanded to share the story of the Passover when the Passover lamb came. To share the crossing of the Jordan when they went into the promised land. And to share the Ten Commandments and the giving of the Ten Commandments. Why? They're telling God's story. They're telling something that God did for them. How many of all of us, we got some God stories. How many are thankful for some things God has done for you? 
I've got a God story. God has done things for me, and there's stories that we should tell. And we should tell that some of you, during this time of prayer and fasting, God did miracles for you. And that's your God story. That's God doing something powerful in your life. We should tell our story. There's no greater story than your story. How many are thankful the day you got saved? The moment Jesus touched you and redeemed you. That's your story. And you, we should share our story. And that's why, you know, people laugh when I, when I share my testimony and I give all that information about my salvation. You know why I do that? Because that's my story. That's my story. That's the moment I got changed. That's the moment my life was changed forever. And that's the story that God has given me. And then we tell the story, which is Jesus. How many know that there's only one story that matters? And the center point of every story is the cross. Is that not right? Is the cross not the center point of every story? That Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and we can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus, washed in his blood to new life, believing in our heart that God raised Christ from the dead. When we ask Jesus into our heart, we are forgiven. And the Bible says old things have passed away and all things can become new in our life because it's the story. It's the story of Christ. We overcome the wicked one. We overcome the enemy by the word of our testimony and the blood of the lamb. How many are thankful for our story? So we praise God. We thank God. So tonight on our way to spiritual competence and maturity, uh, I'm going to talk about living uh, what, uh, what I'm learning, living what I've learned. And there may be a lot of these nights, there's going to be more than one of those that can be intertwined in here. But I want to talk about mission possible tonight, having a mission that's possible. Now, there is someone in the Bible that did live mission possible. And his character and who he became, it shows us that, that his, he lived out his mission. He lived out his call. He answered the call to God. When God called him, he answered the call. And he went and did individually what God had called him to do. And he lived his life on mission. And there's no greater story than to example or to give us a picture of what living on mission would be than the story of Nehemiah and the book of Nehemiah. It's one of my favorite books. And uh, of course, every time I preach, I say, well, that's my favorite passage or that's my favorite book. It's all my favorite, but this is one of my favorites. And what it does, it shows you the heart and the character of someone who lives on mission. It shows you their character. It shows who they are. A man who took what seemed to be an impossible mission and proved that what God said in the scripture that we read before, that all things are possible to him who believe and put their trust in him. And he, he showed us that through his life. Nehemiah lived out what he believed and what he knew. He lived out his life. He lived out what he had learned. He lived out what he'd known. He lived out what God had spoken to him and what God showed him, and he lived it out. He lived it out every day. But before God sent him, right, before God sent him, he had to first be discipled, and he had to still learn some things in the palace and learn some things where he was before he was ready to go do what God had called him to do. And we have to understand that the same integrity that sends us into our call is the same integrity we have to learn before we step into our call. Because if you don't have integrity before God calls you out, 
You'll never have integrity when you go out to be used of God. Because it all begins in the private place of our life. It all begins in the place where we surrender our lives in the quiet place and surrender our lives in the moments when we're not seen, in the moments when we're not seen. That's where true integrity is. That's where true calling is, is when we live out what we believe in our private lives, not just live it out in our public lives. How many are with me tonight? How many know God will never send you to the nations if you, if you, can't, if you can't live it out at your house, live it in your home, live it on your job, live it in your private life, live it in, right? Y'all with me tonight, right? If you're stealing from people in your private life, don't think God's going to elevate you to some type of promotion. If you can't walk in character in your private life, God is not going to release you into, people come to me and say, well, why am I not in the ministry? I don't know why you're not in the ministry. You need to ask God. Paul said, the Lord putteth me into the ministry. All right, well, well, I'll move on because I know that's got a lot, of, a lot of headway. But Nehemiah lived out what he believed, and, and there are some principles in Nehemiah's life that we can learn uh, also to live life mission possible. And we're going to look at some of those, and, and we're going to talk about some of those. If you would, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. And to this great book, and I'm going to read a few verses, and we're going to look at a couple of verses tonight. And so the next few services, I'm going to deal with this mission possible and talk about the steps, our measures, spiritual confidence in our life. Are we living what we are learning? Are we living out what God is showing us and teaching us in the Word of God? This is a powerful passage of Scripture. And I'll give you some background in a little bit, but Uh, Let's read the passage of Scripture, uh, first of all. And the Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of of Chizov, in the twelfth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. Now that was his brother. It was one of his brothers came with the men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. Now, his brothers came from Jerusalem to give Nehemiah a report, and Nehemiah had asked what was taking place in Jerusalem. Now, they didn't have CNN, they didn't have Fox News, and they didn't have selfies or cell phones, so there was no way that Nehemiah would have known other than the reports that he would have gotten from those who had been there. And so in verse 3, and they said to him, survivors who are left from the captivity in the providence are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now, what you have to understand is, is that this time of Nehemiah, he is a contemporary of Ezra. He's also a uh, somewhat a contemporary of Esther, but he is a contemporary. Matter of fact, it is uh, the king, Artaxerxes at the time, is actually the son of Xerxes, who was Esther's husband. And so uh, he gets this report that Israel is in a place of distress, 
that the, the city is uh, in reproach. We'll talk about that in a minute in Jerusalem. And so here Nehemiah gets this report, and this report has an impact on his life. It changes his life. This report literally moves him, and it drives him to a place of prayer, drives him to a place of fasting and prayer. It drives him. It says, the wall of Jerusalem is also burned down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so Nehemiah is visibly upset by this news. He's visibly upset. And you and I, it's hard for us to understand that the impact of what the city of Jerusalem meant to the Jew, how what that city was represented, the fact that its walls were burned down and, and are crumbled and in ruins and its gates were burned, that was an indication to most Jews that God had left them and had left them vulnerable and left them without protection. It was a sign that God had removed himself from them and now they had made themselves vulnerable to the enemy and to everybody who would want to trample upon them. Now at this time, there had been two exiles that had gone back to Jerusalem. Ezra had led one and had led one of them back and another went back. And this Nehemiah would be leading a third group that would be heading back to Jerusalem. Ezra went back to restore the temple, to rebuild the temple. But what happened was, even though he rebuilt the temple, the problem was they had no walls of protection because the walls were burned down. The wall, the gates were burned down. The walls weren't built. And so what good is the temple if it's not protected by those who would come and ravage and take from the temple? It's a, it's a clear picture of our moral lives, that the walls represented a protection and a boundary for God's people so that the enemy could not get to the interior of their spiritual lives. And morality in our life is the walls that we put up that keep the enemy from getting into the heart of who we are and destroying the moral fabric of our heart which we believe that we try to dedicate to God. But if we don't have boundaries, if we don't have walls, if we don't have conviction, if we don't have things that are there to keep the enemy from penetrating, then what we've done is we've made our spiritual lives vulnerable to God. And the problem is, is that many of us rebuild internally, but what we do is we don't change the surroundings around us and we still keep the same friends. <laughs> Help me now. We still keep the same friends. We still keep doing the same things we did before we gave our life to Jesus. We've not changed our morals. We've not changed our boundaries. We've not changed what our convictions. We've not surrounded ourselves with biblical authority in our lives. And so everything that God does that's new and fresh and builds, if we don't have perimeter of the Holy Spirit that is protecting us and keeping us, all you're doing is setting yourself up for the enemy to come in and plunder everything that God does in a short time. Okay, y'all with me? 
Because how many Christians can get free for a few days? I wish, I'm telling y'all, this is where our Christian lives are living. We have people who get touched by God and they're sincerely touched by God. But they do not rebuild the walls of their life and they do not set up the gates of authority and they still allow the enemy to come in and ravage what God takes and does in a moment and changes us and touches us, but yet we do not protect it by the way we walk before God. Okay. Are y'all with me tonight? Because we know we've got to rebuild walls. We've got to build walls that are a sign of God's protection. And they're a sign of witness also. The walls of Jerusalem was a sign as a witness to the enemies of Jerusalem and the enemies of all of God's people was that when those walls were secure and strong, it was a sign to the enemy, you cannot penetrate this city. And when you're strong spiritually and you've set gates up and boundaries and you've rebuilt walls, it's telling the enemy that I belong to God and you cannot go past this boundary. You cannot get through here because there's no breach in this wall when God builds the wall. There's no breach here. I am not going to let you enter in because I have protected myself with the word of God and the protection of God and that is a witness to all who see it. Hang with me. And so Nehemiah, these principles, he's living with this mission. He's visibly upset by what he sees. He's visibly upset not by what he sees, but what he hears. And he begins to fast and pray. And if you go on through verses 4 through 11, he cries out to God. He just pours himself out in this prayer to God. And he just begins to pour himself out. He begins to release his heart and feeling. And then we come to chapter 2. And when we get to chapter 2, the Bible says, it says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan. And it says, In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when when, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never... Now... I had never been sad in, the presence, in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies in waste, And its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to him, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judea, to the city of my fathers and the tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleases the king, so that it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Now Nehemiah, he is before the king, and as he is before the king, he is uh, he's very distraught, and 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 not only is he distraught, but the countenance, his countenance is seen by the king, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I want us to see a couple of things tonight. 
First of all, I'm just going to give you one little section of, of just this tonight because I believe it's an important part of this. Very few leaders in our day and very few ministries are focusing on the boundaries or the walls of morality uh, that have been broken down in our society. How many know that, and it's much reported, you know, I don't have to preach on it, you know that the boundaries that God has set for us to exist peacefully uh, on the earth, how many know that many of these traditional values and boundaries have been tumbled and have been crumbled in, in the very midst of our lives? How many we've seen the moral walls begin to break down in our culture, in our society? Right? Is that not right? How many have seen the family erode over the last 25 years? How many have seen the, uh, the gender movement where now, now we no longer have binary thought, but now everything is inclusive? And uh, I've not, I'm telling y'all, I, I'm about ready to take my TV and put it in the lake because I'm telling you, every other commercial is some homosexual kissing somebody talking about some place they're going to go, or some transgender trying to sell me some type of drug to buy so that I don't get AIDS. I'm telling you, you don't have to worry about me getting AIDS. But what it's doing, it's giving a license of people to be fluid in who they are and just to show themselves out at whatever they want to be. But that's the culture and hour we're living in. And walls have been built down and, bu- and boundaries have been broken and walls have been broken. And what happens is, is that people are able to step over the boundaries of society that God has placed. How many know God's boundaries don't move? How many know this word has not moved? I'm telling you, it's the same today as it was in Jesus' day. This book don't get outdated. This book doesn't, look what happens is the heart of men changes. But I want to tell you, this book knows the heart of man. And he's just as wicked today as he was in the days of Noah. And we know in the last days it'll be as in the days of Lot and as in the days of Noah. But this book has not changed one bit. God has not moved his boundary line. But let me tell you what happens is the church keeps moving the boundary line of God. No, I'm serious. I read an article yesterday. I posted it on my page because I just wanted to do it because I, sometimes I do that. I, I'm not trying to stir trouble up. I just want people to read it. But the Southern Baptist Convention is in this place of division. Who would ever have thought that? The Southern Baptist Church would be in this place. Now, they've always had this little division between those that lean a little bit more liberal. When I say liberal, it means that they... There's those that don't believe that the Word of God is, uh, is literal, that there's a lot of uh, uh, embellishing or, or, or fabrication or whatever they want to say uh, with those who are literalists, who believe the Word of God is the Word of God. There's always been that kind of that battle that has been. But what's happening now is, is that the denomination, and we're, and we're not, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, we're not, that's not, you know, I'm just giving you an example What's happening is, is that the whole denomination now is being overrun by people that's moving the boundary of the Word of God, and they're forcing their pastors to read these books on the acceptance of homosexuality. 
They were forcing them to read and talk to counselors and psychologists who are beginning to teach that the Word of God teaches that this, these kinds of lifestyles, and I'm not just talking about homosexuality, I'm talking about sin in general, that these kind of things are actually taught in Scripture. I'm here to tell you that that is a lie from the pit of hell. They have been snake bitten. Y'all hear what I'm saying? They have been snake bitten. Did y'all see this week uh, that they are kind of figuring out where the virus, the uh, is it the coronas, corollas virus, where it's come? Did y'all see where they found it came from? That blew my mind. That the 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 the, the, the virus originated in China in a small village, a fishing village, where the people began to eat exotic animals. In other words, the people started eating rats and bats. But this virus, they say, started when the people began to eat a certain type of Chinese cobra. It's a snake. And they would eat that snake as a delicacy, as an exotic animal, and that is the source of this virus. Listen to me. Listen to me. God has given us a prophetic picture that you start taking of the lies of the enemy and what the snake dishes out for you to eat, you'll catch it. You'll catch the virus and you'll stop believing truth. You'll stop believing the word of God. You'll stop making excuses as to why this thing is not real or why it's outdated or why it can be it can be changed or why it can be interpreted different. I'm here to tell you that every jot and tittle in this word was put here by the Holy Spirit. It's not men, but it's God who moved upon the hearts of men by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Don't be snake bitten. Stop eating things that's going to cause a virus in your life. And it's a picture. It really is a picture. And, and, and I want to tell you, Perry Stone wrote something this week I thought was interesting. He said, for the first time, I began to realize how in the Apocrypha or how in the book of Revelation, how can come about disease that can wipe out half the world. I'm beginning to see it. And, and the Apocrypha where it, talks about the, where it talks about the infections of the beasts of the field who wipes out population. We think that it's beasts that are eating people, but it's not true. It's people that are eating the beast and becoming infected with viruses. And this possibly could be a way that in the last days when you begin to see the things of revelation come about, all of a sudden you begin to think, hey... This could be a way. And listen, this is why those people in China began to eat those rats and bats and snakes. The reason they did was because of a food shortage. Right? Now think about it. When people get hungry, they'll eat anything. I ain't going there because if all the animals are ate up, you know who's next. Because <laughs> if they'll eat a bat... <laughs> I'm just telling you, I'm on a bus. I'm out of there, baby. And uh, I'm not the missionary that God has called to go there. I'm just telling you. And uh, I mean, we're laughing about it, but I'm telling you the depravity of man, the depravity of man can drive him to do things that you'll shake your head at and go, oh my God, I cannot believe humanity would even do that. I mean, we're continually being shocked. Is that not right? 
continually being shocked. I, I was in a crowd of people yesterday, and a guy walked up, well, it walked up beside me, and I couldn't tell what it was. I didn't know if it was a boy or if it was a girl. I'm telling you, I'm not, I'm not being funny, I'm just telling you. Let me tell you something. There's a difference between the spirit of homosexuality and, and sodomy. Homosexuality is not sodomy. Homosexuality is a spirit. It's a spirit. It's a feminine spirit that gets on people. It is a change of nature. And when people give themselves to that spirit, their very nature can change. No, I'm telling you, their, very, their, 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 their nature can change in the way that they act, in the way that they demonstrate themselves. They can change their whole nature. Now, they have all kinds of drugs. That can, I don't even know why I'm on this tonight. This is not where I wanted to go. But I'm just telling you. And I was walking beside this person last night. We were walking. There was a crowd of people. And we were walking. And I looked. And, and I looked. And I, I kept. I, I could not figure it out. I said, God. I said, God, I don't even know. And he, and, and he turned. And he turned. And he said, yeah, all right. I knew then. <laughs> he said, yeah, all right. And I knew. <laughs> it gave me an indication where I was and what was going on. Listen, that, that's not funny. That, that breaks our heart because I'm telling you that what's happening is we're snake bitten in the believing and the believing the lie of the enemy and it's keeping people from God's best in their life. And I believe God can help us live on mission so that not only can we see people get saved, but we can see people who believe that they have to change their nature in order to be loved and accepted, that there, there can be a place and a safe place that they can find the grace and the mercy of God because the God that created you is the God that created them and the mercy that was extended to you is the mercy that also can be extended to them. Is that not true? The question is, do we have the capacity and the ability to minister do we have the spiritual competence to minister to people who are so broken and in those situations to help bring them out of where they are into a life of victory with Christ? Are we spiritually competent? Are we spiritually mature to be able to handle somebody that, listen, how would we handle somebody that would come into this congregation that would be an extension of that? How would you respond? I mean, think about it. How would we as a church respond if the drag queen came in with her Bible? No, I'm serious. What would you do? I don't know. I don't know if we're mature enough. And I'm not saying somebody could come in and take over and be here and act like nothing's wrong and nothing's going on. But I'm telling you, initially, there needs to be a show of mercy and love an opportunity to change, an opportunity of grace and to love where they're at. But listen, here's the thing. Here's where we mess up. What we do is, is we, they come and people want to be changed. I'm talking about anybody. They come and they, and they, and they, and they sit there. We cannot, there, the gospel should be preached in a way that if you're unsaved, that if you're living in a way that is contrary to the word of God, that you may be able to come and feel loved and feel accepted and feel as a part of the kingdom, but there should be a time there should be a time 
when your sin should come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that should move you to a change and move you to a place of healing and a place of absolute transformation. But if we allow them to sit here five years and read books to our children and and live a certain way and go, listen, it's not about judging. It's not a judging thing. It's not a judging thing. It has to do with the willingness to help people get to a place of transformation in their life. And guess what? Some people won't allow you to do it. And they'll say, well, that church is judgmental. That's not fair. You know why that's not fair? Because what the world perceives as judgment is really sometimes conviction. <laughs> I've heard people say, well, don't judge me. Don't, I'm not judging you. I got lost family members at our time going, you know, and I don't say anything to them, you know, and they don't understand why they're under conviction. They don't understand why they, why they, why they are under, under, you know, conviction. I was like that. I stayed away from my grandmother when I, you know, when I got in high school, because I knew that if I got around her, she's going to ask me some hard questions, questions I didn't want to answer. And I didn't go around her because I didn't want the conviction. And so she, she told me one time, she said, you know, uh, Shane, <laughs> I was like 14, 15. She says, do you smoke any of that mar- marijuana? And I said, who's asking? (laughs) And uh, I never gave her an answer. But this is what she said to me. I'll never forget. She said, you know, I'm just going to pray that any time you or any of you boys get on them drugs, take them drugs, those psychedelics, she called them. She's from the 60s. She called them psychedelics. I mean, y'all know the 60s. Everybody was in psychedelics. She said, you take them psychedelics. She said, I'm just going to pray that you see Jesus, that you see angels, that you see God, that you see, you see. (laughs) And you know what? I couldn't smoke a marijuana cigarette without seeing some kind of angel or Jesus. (laughs) Some people are seeing, you know, colors and flowers and all that stuff, whatever that stuff is. I'm telling you, I got a grandmother that's praying that I have visions from heaven every time I smoke a marijuana cigarette. But that's how you've got to pray. Because only an encounter with God can change people's lives. Only an encounter with God can bring transformation. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing wrong with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And it should be a part of this church. It should be a part of our lives. It should be a part of our church. But what's happened is we have, man, where his time has gone. I got a couple minutes. Man, I haven't even got to where I'm headed. Man. We have focused on everything that is external, forgetting to change man on the inside. And what we've done is, is that we have, we have focused on everything. And uh, uh, I, I want to read something to you. There was a, a man by the name of Malcolm Mugridge. I don't know if, if any of you are familiar with him. He was a uh, leading uh, commentator in the 1970s. He was an English journalist. And some say he was one of the most poignant uh, writers of his generation. 
And uh, some would say that him and G.K. Chesterton uh, were two of the best and that uh, they, were, they were great writers. He, he was an amazing writer. He wrote many books. If you ever find, if you ever like uh, 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 to study apologetics or if you ever like reading, he was somebody like Francis Schaeffer. I don't know if you're familiar with Francis Schaeffer, uh, but he, they're, they're one of the, he's, one, he's a man, a leading man of writing and thought, just an amazing when it comes to spiritual things. This is what he said in the 1940s and 50s, and it's almost even prophetic to our day. This is what he said. He said, it's difficult to resist the conclusion that the 20th century man has decided to abolish himself. In other words, tired of the struggle to be himself, he has created boredom out of his own affluence, his impotence out of his own erotomania, vulnerability out of his own strength. He blows the trumpet, he blows the trumpet, bringing the wall of his own cities crashing down until at last having educated himself into imbecility, having drugged and polluted himself into stupor, into stupefaction, he keels over as a weary old brontosaurus and becomes extinct. In other words, what he's saying is man in himself has really destroyed himself. That through his own actions, he's brought himself to this place. Uh, through his education, he has made himself foolish. That through his own vulnerability, he has lost his strength. That through his own impotence, that eroticism no longer satisfies his life. And he blows the trumpet. And what happens is the very cities in which he built come crumbling down to the place of where he makes himself to the place to where he waits on himself to be extinct. And that's what man has done. That's what man has tried to do. That's why uh, 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 there's nothing so vulgar left in human experience that cannot explain, cannot be explained or justified by humanism. Listen, we're seeing some things happening in our society and you have these educated people that come on, and there's nothing wrong with that, that they can explain away anything. Humanism can explain away anything or why anything exists. And we're not being shocked by the depravity of man. Are you all with me? Have we not seen how the depravity of man has come to the place to where not only when we don't want to deal with something, you know what we do? We find a reason why we can justify it. Come on now, y'all help me. Well, he's crazy because this. He does this because of this. And what we've done is, is we're now we're not living in a day when the word of God and the authority of the word pulls men into accountability. But what the church has done, because we've become illiterate to the word of God, we've embraced humanism and we have moved the boundaries of conviction so that we could pacify and justify the actions of people who refuse to be mature in God. I don't know if y'all got that or not, but I'm here to tell you, that is why there's spiritual incompetence. 
Because we refuse to hold people accountable for the actions that they do. Okay, well, well, oh man, I don't even know if we're, if I'm in the same building with y'all. I believe it's Alden Huckley, who's the great, who's a humanist. He said, science has done, brought us into a place of improvement to the place to where the means in order to obtain hitherto deteriorate the end. In other words, what he's saying is science has made us so comfortable that what happened is that comfortability has left us in a place to where we are deteriorating into an end. You know there's a spiritual stupor that has come on the church. Listen to me. If you get anything else here tonight, I'm about done. If you get anything else here tonight, we have become in life so comfortable that we have lost our affection or our passion for the lost and for depravity and for salvation of others because we are so comfortable it is leading us to a place to where the church is living in such a stupor that we feel like we, in order to go get the lost, in order to change the world, we've got to come out of our comfortability in order to do that, but we don't want to leave the comfortability because we like it, but the truth is it's leading the church to a place where it's leading to an end. If we don't get the passion of God back in our life, if revival doesn't hit us, and the reason we're non-concerned is because we're not affected. It's not in our living room. So why do we care? Are you all with me? And because the drug addict is not in my bed, at my house, in my bedroom, I've lost my compassion for him. And because the broken marriage is not around, I'm not around it. It's not affected me. I've lost my passion for it. Let me tell you what happened to Nehemiah. He's living in this place of comfortability. He's in the palace of the king. He's carrying the most trusted position there could ever be. Isn't it amazing how God positions us when he gets ready to move in our life? Did he not do this with Esther? Did he not do it with Daniel? Did he not do it? God positioned the man of God in a place where he has a place of influence. When you read that passage and the king had noticed that Nehemiah's, you know how he noticed that Nehemiah's countenance was sad? Because he had a relationship with him. Right? If you're married to someone and y'all have a relationship, you can tell when the other one is sad. Is that not right? But I know people who can't, who are married. I know she's mad. Got to say something. I know, when my, I, I know when my wife's mad. It's a look. It's a look. It's a, it's a stare. A long one. First time I saw it, there was a fork that came at the end of it. 
We had been married a week and she made dinner. And I said, well, my mom don't make potatoes like that. It went, it hit the floor, and it went right by my head. And I sat down and ate every bit of it. Nehemiah had relationship with the king. He was trusted. In other words, the king loved him, trusted him. In other words, Nehemiah built respect and integrity where he was before God sent him out. God saw him in his private moments before he sent him out publicly to do the work of God. And there was one key to Nehemiah's life, and it's what I wanted to talk about, but I'm not going to get there. But there was one key to Nehemiah's life. Everything in his life began with prayer. Prayer was the foundation That led everything into his life. If you read, he fell into prayer. He fell into a time of fasting and prayer. Just because the fast is over, does that mean y'all are going to stop praying? I hope not. I hope not. I hope that you continue to pray. I hope it's not the end of fasting. But we see this whole chapter, he begins to pray. But I want to close with this. Adam, if you'll come, I want to close with this. It's time to close. Wish I could go on. Part two Sunday. I didn't even get to the good part. Here we have Nehemiah. God puts a passion in his heart for his city. Puts a passion in his heart for Jerusalem. And uh, But here's what I believe happened. Do you all remember when we started... When I started in January, when I began to preach this series of Living on Mission, and I gave us a scripture out of the book of Isaiah chapter 37. And Isaiah chapter 37 and verses beginning in verse 31, and I gave you a foundational scripture. Nehemiah had hope. He had hope. And the reason he had hope was is because he believed the word of God. And, the, and I want to tell you, all of us tonight, our society has hope because we believe the Word of God. Because the Word of God can transform. God can bring a revival to this nation. I'm telling you, until Jesus comes back, God can do anything. There's an impossibility of what He can do. Our city's not lost. Our people, I'm telling you, God can bring a revival. The church can be in revival. But what did Nehemiah have to go on? I'll tell you what he had to go on. He had to go on two passages of Scripture. I believe they were in his heart. I get to heaven. We can ask him. But I believe they were in his heart because he was concerned about it. The first passage I believe was in his heart was in Isaiah 37. I read it to you earlier when we began to preach this. And the Bible began to say that those and the remnant of who escaped the house of Judah shall take root again downward and bear fruit upward. In other words, the promise was in Isaiah and in the Word of God that those who would come out of the captivity, those who would come out of the 70 years of captivity, 
those who were in Jerusalem who were being foraged and those who were being overcome, those who were being rioted, those that were vulnerable. The promise of God was, I'm going to take a remnant out of those that come out of the captivity. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to reroute them again downward so that they could arise again upward. And living on mission is taking a war world and rooting them downward and rooting them in the foundation of the word of God so that they can grow upward. Why do we live on mission? So why do we do these things? So that we can be rooted again in the things of God and begin to grow upward. And listen, it goes on down through the passage toward down verse 32. And it said that this is done by the zeal of the Lord of hosts. And it says he will do this thing. I'm telling you, Nehemiah had a promise out of the word of God that God was going to use a remnant. He had a promise. He had a promise that God, listen, those of you that got children that are away from God, you may be in a situation that may not look good, but I'm here to tell you there is a promise in the word of God that God can change your situation. That's what he had. And then he had Isaiah 49, 16. This was a promise of God also. It said, yet I will not forget you. Can you see that I have inscribed you on the palm of my hand? Some translation says the palm of my right hand. And your walls are ever continually before me. What is the promise? God says, I've written you in the palm of my hand. You've been inscribed. It is ever before me. And it says your walls are ever before me. What is God saying? God is saying my eyes are always on Jerusalem. That's what he says in the Old Testament. You know what he says in the New Testament? That his eyes is always on his church. That's the promise. He's always on his church. Stand with me tonight if you would. Christianity is one of the most interesting. The gospel is the most supreme truth there is. Because it's different than any other worldview. If you talk to a Hindu, they would say that the karmic law is what they live by. In other words, they obey that law and by their righteousness they are they are obtained their eternal life, their goodness, their own righteousness. If you talk to a true Muslim, and really you hear a true Muslim, a true Muslim truly believes that his good deeds that way outweigh his bad deeds will allow him to enter into paradise. That's, what they tr- that's the bottom line of what they truly believe. They're good deeds. Listen, but notice this. Every worldview but Christianity has to do with your own righteousness and your own works. But Christianity says that we obtain heaven by what? By grace and by mercy. Because it's not our righteousness. It's his righteousness. Isn't that amazing? If you go to Israel, in the 1500s, 
when the Ottomans rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem, and then the and then um, the Muslims came, and what they did was is that you can see the pictures. Go home and look. Google the picture. Google the Eastern Wall, and what you'll see is is that the Eastern Wall was blocked up. It's one of the only one of the few gates that have been sealed up. The Muslims sealed it up because the prophecy of the Word of God that when Jesus returned, He's going to return through the Eastern Gate. So the Muslims sealed it up. But not only did they seal it up, but you know what else they did? They put a cemetery in front of the eastern, eastern wall. And they put dead people in front of the eastern wall. They boarded it up with brick, and they, built, and they put a cemetery in front of it. You know why they did that? Because Jewish law says no rabbi can walk through a cemetery. And they believed that if the prophecy is true that Jesus is going to come back, they sealed up the wall so that he couldn't get in, and they put the cemetery there because no rabbi would walk through there because if he did, he'd be unclean. Now that's their thinking. I just got some news for you. By the time Jesus gets there, every one of those dead people are going to be risen, and ain't nobody going to be dead. <laughs> Believe me, Jesus can walk through walls. Just ask his disciples. We're living on mission. It's not mission impossible. It's mission possible. And this assignment is not going to self-destruct in five minutes. Because the call of God is beyond repentance. It's a call that will last and last. So tonight, just lift your hands to the Lord. We're going to pray as we dismiss tonight. Lord, my prayer tonight is that we catch the fire. That God, that we begin to live on mission. Lord, I know that I just talked tonight. I just shared from my heart. I just, I wasn't trying to be super spiritual. Just out of our heart, God. We, we need to have compassion for the lost. Those that need Jesus. Lord, let the passion that entered Nehemiah when he heard the news of a distressed city, that, that the land of his fathers was destroyed. He again was awakened to the passion for his people. God, I don't know what it's going to take to awaken us, to have passion, and to live on mission, to reach all, to teach the disciple, to send the called. To live a spiritual competence. I don't know what it will take, God, but I pray that you'll do it. But Nehemiah took the time and he fell on his face and began to pray. The foundation of everything he did was bathed in prayer. So God, we pray tonight that you would give us the heart of Nehemiah and realize that God, in his word, he said, Yet I will not forget you. See that I have inscribed you on the palm of my hand. And your walls are continually before me. I pray, God, that, Lord, you'll build conviction in our heart. That, God, we'll have a passion, again, to see people saved and transformed and renewed and strengthened. Send us out to do that which, God, we, we are called to do. To fulfill everything you've asked us to do. Turn our hearts towards you. We pray tonight that, God, again, light the fire. Let us be less concerned by that which is trivial and focus on that which is eternal. Let us be more concerned about the eternity of men instead of the temporary positioning of men. Thank you for joining us for River Valley Community Church's podcast. 
If you feel led to give, you can click on the donation link in the description or visit our website at rivervalleymadison.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share with your friends. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.